I think another really important aspect of why we want to do this kind of research is to understand optimum care and how do we get at optimum care. So can we understand what elements of patient-clinician communication are most important to engendering good therapeutic alliance, are most important to engendering better brain-to-brain concordance? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The idea that the only constant is change, the Buddhist reminder of impermanence and the Tao Te Ching's endless riff on how everything is in constant motion and there is no such thing as standstill. It all sounds nice as a philosophy, but I don't think it's philosophy. I think it's a warning. In the abstract, it makes for lovely Instagram memes and refrigerator magnets, but the reality of ever unfolding change when you're actually staring it in the face, it's terrifying. I've been reading a book lately titled Richer, Wiser, Happier. It's about investors and investing. It's not a how-to book. It's more like a deep dive into the quirky nature of men who are the Jedi masters of this world of business, money, and most importantly, human nature. As I've been reading this book, I've come to a little epiphany that these top-notch investors are not only keen students of human nature, but as the author points out, they are extremely strange people. They're strange in that they really don't care what others think about them. They are perfectly content to tune out the popular opinion of the day. They are happy to spend their days in solitude, reading quarterly and annual reports in the same way that you might noodle through the Ling Shu or a favorite teacher's book on acupuncture looking for an insight that gives you a new footing on the world. When you think about cultivation and practice from a Chinese medicine perspective, the hours spent in meditation, qigong, or any of the pursuits that quiet and focus the mind, you'll see that these masterful managers of money are likewise deeply cultivated. But here's the thing about this book that has been most interesting to me. It's a book about impermanence. And not in theory, but in practice, because these investors are laying down millions of dollars at a time on the assumption that things are going to change. That's not philosophy. That is skin in the game. Now, no one really knows how things will change. We all harbor stories and hopes about the future, but the reality of life is that it is fundamentally and deeply uncertain. The stock market, the daily Dow, if you will, is the touchstone of the business and financial worlds and shows you the difference between what you think is happening and what is actually happening. Clearly, the financial world is not the entirety of life, but like the various organ systems of our body, they all have their place and function. Finances relate to a kind of chi that both acts as a resource and a communication channel. You're deluding yourself if you think of money only as an abstraction. Uncertainty is a lovely idea on the meditation cushion. But the reality of uncertainty in something like the stock market, your marriage, your practice, or what happens to your kids at school, well, that's all another story. Putting money into the stock market, sending your kids to a particular school, buying a building for your practice in a particular location. These moments when you stake a claim, you say, I'm here and I'm committed 
when you decide that you're not just in, you're all in. This is when the experience of certainty, if we allow it in and not hide from it, it can open you to the terror of change that is always just under the surface of our whistling past the graveyard. Investors know this. Cancer patients know this. The newly divorced and delightfully just fallen in love know this too. Every leaf in the wind, every flower bud, rain cloud, and those who can sit still enough to see that life never for a moment stops. The world is falling together even as it's falling apart. And if you're not to some measure bothered by uncertainty, then you're likely not paying close enough attention to this unimaginably entangled world. That said, there are patterns, rhythms, and tides. But when those tides shift, just where in the pattern we are, in the tempo of the rhythms, that is harder to grasp. Especially when we are attached to ideas about how the world should be. It is difficult to see through the distortions of our filters and our biases. And the constant reminder of uncertainty can help us in staying anchored to the moment as it arises. Regardless of whether you're investing in your child's future education or sitting with a patient who's had an adverse reaction to your treatment, we are constantly being invited into moments of unavoidable uncertainty. Part of the practice is how we navigate in those moments. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. 
Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. We're going to get into a conversation with Vitale Napadal on some fascinating research that he's been involved in that looks into the brains of patients and practitioners using fMRI technology. Vitaly Napado, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you here. You, you have a really interesting background. You got a background in mechanical engineering. You got a background in medical engineering. You're an acupuncturist. You do all this radiology stuff. We were actually in Beijing at the same time, but we never ran into each other way back, like in the early part of the century. You've been all over the place. That's exciting. So you were there during SARS. Yes, I was there during SARS. SARS-1. SARS-1. That's right. That's right. The day that I walked into the clinic, in the respiratory clinic where I was studying, and I saw my teacher there wearing three masks, I turned around and left. (laughs) That was the day you leave. Yeah, I remember the ambulances driving all over town, you know, driving patients to hide them from the media and stuff. And I got out of Dodge too. Um, I was with my my now wife, girlfriend at the time, who was working at an international school, and she stayed. And eventually, her, um, you know, the school like shut down, and she was trying to get back into the states. It was a whole whole saga there. So when you escaped, where did you go? Back to the states or somewhere else? I just came back to the states. Just back to the States. Yeah. So I had started my research postdoc and they were, you know, excited to have me come back as soon as possible. So Yeah. I fled to Taiwan where they closed the border approximately forty eight hours after I arrived. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun times. Anyway, I am really excited to have you on the podcast because you do have this background in Chinese medicine. And you have some very extensive background with Western medicine and especially with imaging. That's right. We're going to get into all this, but how did those pieces all come together? 
that's a very unusual portfolio that you have there. Yeah, well, um, what happened was I came to Boston to do a PhD degree in medical engineering. And as a part of that, we take medical school classes at Harvard. And when I started those classes, I wanted a, uh, another perspective. And I had a long history of uh, practicing Tai Chi Chuan, and, but I knew nothing about Chinese medicine or acupuncture. And I found out that there was a school located right here in Boston, and it's actually the oldest school in the United States, New England School of Acupuncture. And I contacted them, asked them to audit a course. And they said, no, you can't audit a course, but if you want, you can start a program half time. So I said, I'll do that. And basically was taking night school classes while I was getting my PhD and um, just really fell in love with it and really loved the, the interaction with patients, the human connection. I was doing a lot of coding, a lot of computer work for my PhD and loved that as sort of a counterpoint and stuck it out and became a clinical acupuncturist. That's amazing. So. You're working with human beings in a very heart-to-heart way. At the same time, you're doing this deep coding stuff. Yeah. And, and at that time, I wasn't doing any sort of acupuncture research. In fact, interestingly enough, I hated acupuncture research. I hated the thought of acupuncture research. I was like, I'm going to acupuncture school to escape all this like research stuff. I'm going to acupuncture school to stick needles in people, talk to people, and understand their problems. And you know, I, I don't want to get involved in acupuncture research. But then what happened was after I graduated... I realized that there was no way to keep kind of living this separate schizophrenic existence. And so I had to either change my research portfolio or drop acupuncture clinical practice. I didn't want to drop acupuncture clinical practice. So I decided to get into acupuncture research. And because my PhD research involved imaging, I decided to do a postdoc in neuroimaging to understand the brain and understand neuroscience. And that got me into acupuncture research. It is so hilarious at times, the paths that we say, I'm not going down there. And then we end up meeting our fate on the path that we took to avoid it. Absolutely. And when I talk to junior investigators and students, I always say it's about the opportunity. You have to follow the path. It's many times a winding road. And what you need to do is not box yourself in, but look around, look for those opportunities that come up. And there's these bifurcation points in life. And that's where you make that decision that can like completely change the rest of your life and always be on the lookout for those points. They're amazing. And I find they always come from the periphery. They're, it's never the thing right in front of you. It's like always this little thing on the side. It's like this little glint. It catches your attention. You go, huh, I wonder what that is. Yeah, absolutely. 10 years later, new career. Right. <laughs> yeah. You recently published, along with a number of other people, some research on brain concordance and how patients and practitioners are connected like neurophysiologically. You've stuck people in MRIs and looked to see what's going on inside of people's brains. Right. So for many years, we were doing functional MRI studies to try to understand brain response to acupuncture and acupuncture needling and things like that. And that got me into studies looking at kind of the needling aspect of acupuncture and understanding the needling component and the sensations that the needling evokes and electroacupuncture and, and how does the needle impact clinical outcomes via brain mechanisms. And that's an important aspect of acupuncture. But I think some would argue that an equally important, if not even more important aspect is actually the relationship that's formed between the patient and the acupuncturist and how that impacts clinical outcomes. 
And so we wanted to do research on that aspect of acupuncture as well. And so we started thinking about, well, how are we going to study this very complex relationship and how are we going to study brain activity with this? And there's a form of imaging that's uh, technically very complicated called hyperscanning, where you're imaging two or more individuals at one time. And so this type of research has been done for, you know, very basic kind of, uh, you know, joint attention tasks, mutual information, even like, you know, game playing, role playing, these types of contexts, but never a clinical context where you're studying a patient and a clinician and interacting. And so it took us a while to get the system up and running and to figure out how to do this in, you know, what's called an ecologically valid way. So in research, you know, you want ecological validity, you want the research environment to replicate as, as best as it possibly can the environment that you're trying to study, which in this case is a clinical environment, you know, a clinical interaction. And so that was kind of the study we devised and recently uh, completed with functional MRI hyperscanning, and that's what was published in Science Advances. A lot of acupuncturists, and I think the reason why many of us love our work, is because we intuitively sense that there is something in that patient practitioner interaction that does something. You know, we just kind of feel it. Or maybe we just believe it and want to believe it. But it sounds like you're actually able to track what's going on in people's brains when this is happening. Yeah, this is, you know, many times, not just in acupuncture, not just in traditional Chinese medicine, but in many forms of medicine, this is sometimes referred to as sort of the art of medicine. You know? A lot of that has kind of gone by the wayside because there's been, you know, there's so much testing and so much protocolization in medicine where the, the kind of the art of medicine is, is gone by the wayside many times because clinicians don't have the time to spend with their patients. It's kind of like, you know, what, what are your inputs? Okay, go get this test, this test, this test, and here are your outputs. And that's what sets the diagnosis. And I think a lot of art of medicine has been lost. And I think that's been to the detriment of uh, clinical outcomes. And that's one thing that we're actually interested in trying to say with some of our research is that uh, it really, it, that it is to the detriment of uh, clinical outcomes if we just drop and stop paying attention to this art of medicine. So what we did in this study is to look at, uh, we set up an interaction wherein an acupuncturist could treat a, an evoked pain uh, that's enacted on the patient with an acupuncture protocol where the patient is in one MRI scanner, the acupuncturist or the clinician is in another MRI scanner, needles are inserted in the patient above a, uh, a device like a cuff pain device, which is squeezing around their leg to, in, to induce a, a pain. And then the acupuncture is used to try to reduce that pain. And the, the acupuncturist, even though they're in a different scanner, can press a button for the electroacupuncture device to basically turn on the electroacupuncture device to pass current for electroacupuncture to occur to try to reduce that cuff pain. And so you have kind of these uh, outcomes that you can track pain outcomes in the patient to see just how much electroacupuncture is successful in down-regulating that pain. And so because you have this kind of clinically relevant outcome in a chronic pain patient, we were working with fibromyalgia patients. Mm we're then able to see how much does the reduction in pain correlate or is associated with all kinds of different physiological outcomes, including uh, facial mirroring. So one thing that we did is that 
we're able to visually transfer the a real-time video of the patient to the acupuncturist and of the acupuncturist to the patient. And so they can communicate non-verbally while all this is going on and we're scanning their brains. Just like we would in the clinic. Just like we would in a clinic. Each of us are looking at each other. Right. And so what we found is that the clinicians are actually mirroring the facial expression of the patients. And the amount that they're mirroring the facial expression of the patients is actually related to the reduction in pain from the electroacupuncture. The more they mirror their patient, the more the reduction in pain due to the electroacupuncture. And even more so, what we found is that there was a link between brain concordance. So when a certain part of the brain is activated in the patient, it is also activated in the clinician. And this part of the brain is called the temporoparietal junction. And the more that the temporoparietal junction is co-activated in the acupuncturist as in the patient, the better the clinical response. So there's this co-activation of brain activity that's also linked to improved clinical response. So when people's brains are mirroring each other, the clinical results tend to be better. That's right. And the question is, why is that happening? And, you know, we don't quite know yet. And so we're doing follow-up studies to try to understand this phenomenon better. It's likely a reflection of other sort of social processes, such as facial mirroring, you know, mirroring the expression, right? We're trying to connect to one another. We, the, the clinician, the acupuncturist, you know, wants to be as empathic as they can, usually. And so they want to make that connection to the patient. And one way to make that connection is to mirror their, their body movements, is to mirror their facial expressions, to try to, quote unquote, show empathy to the patient because they feel that that will give a better clinical outcome. They want to make that connection. And so part of that, part of the, the way that they, that they do this involves, you know, reading the patient, you know, reading their facial cues, reading their expressions. And that's done through a brain region that's part of what's called the social mirroring circuitry. And that social mirroring circuitry includes the temporal parietal junction. And we think that that's why we found this concordance in temporal parietal junction activity between the patient and the clinician. One of the, I'm going to say, blessings of COVID for me as an introvert has been to realize I actually need other people around me. I mean, I'm plenty fine on my own. And at the same time, I recognize there was a part of me that was withering by not having social interaction. I think humans are built to literally breathe the same air in the room. We kind of need that. And I hear you talk about this aspect of the brain that has to do with social mirroring and it's ways that we profoundly connect with each other. And that just makes a lot of sense, just intuitively, from my experience of this past year of, of feeling a hunger for that kind of interaction. We don't even need to talk. I just want to sit across a dinner table from someone and feel connected. You know, COVID has had a lot of very interesting, I think, implications for, for this kind of research. You know, first of all, just the idea of video transfer and communicating via video transfer was used to be a lot more foreign. <laughs> you know, when we set up the study and we were talking about ecological validity of research and having this video transfer, well, is that really ecologically valid? And, you know, it's not the same as somebody in the same room and treating their patient. And of course it's not. But the general idea of, you know, video transfer and interacting over video has become much more normalized, you know, with Zoom and with all these other video transfer services 
since the time of COVID. You know, the other interesting thing, the other in- interesting aspect, because we this research is continuing, we're in the middle of another study, like a follow-up study right now with this, is, you know, we really thought about, you know, how do we even continue this research where we have to have, you know, patients in the same room as clinicians and, you know, the acupuncture needs to happen. And the, the interaction also between the experimenters and the patients needs to keep happening. How do we have the patient and the acupuncturist interact with one another successfully during this type of uh, interaction? And one thing we decided to do, because everybody's masked, right? And so if everybody's masked, you can't read the expression on the face, you know, in a masked environment. And so we actually had to go out and source special masks that are clear, that have a clear plexiglass around them to have the patient and the clinician wear these masks so that we can continue doing this research and still having a, a social interaction with kind of like facial transfer and, and studying, you know, facial expressions and patients and clinicians and how that impacts some of these clinical outcomes. So it's been really interesting trying to continue this research in the time of COVID for many reasons. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvellous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. It's been interesting trying to be a practitioner when all I can see is somebody's eyes. Of course, eyes are helpful. I have become quite aware of how much more information I get. I used to think I just get it from people's eyes, but now I realize the way the mouth works, the way the cheeks are, there's a whole gestalt to the face that I didn't realize was there, except now that it's gone and I have to work extra hard to try to understand my patients now. Yeah, we actually, in in, uh, some research that we're writing up right now, we looked at which facial expressions are most sort of causal to transfer of information from the patient to the clinician. And we actually found that mouth shapes were really important for transferring kind of the expressivity of pain in the facial expressions of patients. And that was a little surprising because I agree with you. I would think a priori that, you know, it's the um, brows and the eyes and and that's where we read so much of uh, human emotion. That would be most dominant, but in this, in at least in the data set that we were looking at, it was mouth expressions and lip shapes that were kind of communicating the pain expression. That makes sense to me. And I can't wait till I can treat people again and see their full faces. 
I also thought, oh, I could just look at someone's eyes and, and I should know. But no. They have these uh, queer masks that you can source. And it might be something good for clinicians to use. Actually, our hospital originally sourced those masks for uh, pediatrics because they were worried that kids would be really put off by clinicians that were wearing masks that were coming in to, to see them. And so they sourced these queer masks for, um, for pedi- uh, pediatric docs. That's brilliant. Do you know where you can get those? Yeah. I mean, we well, we got them out of stock from the hospital, so we didn't have to go straight to the manufacturer. Somehow the hospital sourced them from the manufacturer. But I think there's several brands available now. This was, you know, this is back like last summer when, you know, things were really hitting the fan and, uh, you know, it was really hard to keep research going. But now I think there's multiple suppliers of these queer masks. I'm going to have to go look for that. Boy, that would really give a practitioner an, an edge in the clinic. I would think. And especially with connecting with new patients. What I've done is before people walk in my office, actually walk out the door, social distance, no mask on, introduce myself. Mm -hmm. I remember doing that. I remember the very first patient I saw, you know, after kind of COVID started and I was like asked to see a patient and this was like in April or something like that. It was very early in the pandemic. And I remember thinking this is like so weird. And I literally just like pulled down my mask just so she could see the person that was going to be sticking needles in her. I thought it was very strange. It'd be very strange for me to not see the face of the person that was going to be doing something invasive like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, since everybody's become a lot more comfortable with masks and, you know, it's, we've, we've all, it's all been more normalized, but I remember thinking how strange this was. It has been normalized, but it's not a normal that I think is helpful. And I looked through this research and um, I can put a copy of it on the website for folks, yeah. if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So they can read it too. Absolutely. Research, reading research is not my forte. I could pick up bits and pieces of it. There's some heavy math in there, some heavy lifting. But the, the thing that really got my attention was looking at how there was stronger analgesic and therapeutic effect. And like you were saying, it has to do with that facial mirroring. It has to do with the ways that externally we are connecting with each other and then our brains in turn fall into a sort of synchrony with each other. Right. So the research, I don't want the research to be misinterpreted to think that there's something. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm not reading too much into this. Right. It's not that there's like telekinesis going on or some sort of a transfer of mental energies from one brain to another. I think it's a reflection of other processes that are happening that are on a kind of a a conscious or even subconscious, but on a kind of a mechanical level, such as mirroring facial expressions, mirroring body postures, trying to make this kind of connection with the patient who is then also trying to make a connection with the clinician. And so they're doing certain things and using kind of like social neuroscience and social communication parts of their brain to make that link, to make that connection. And the way we sort of set up the experiment was also, I think, really important because you can have what's called pseudo-concordance, which means that, you know, at the same time, the same area of the brain is active in two individuals, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're communicating any better. So for example, if there was a loud noise, right, my auditory cortex activates, your auditory cortex activated because you also heard that same loud noise. 
But we could be not looking at each other in completely different rooms. And if we heard that same sound at the same time, we would have that part of the brain activated. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily communicating. And so that's what's called pseudo concordance. And so in order to avoid that, what we did is that we repeated the evoke pain and the acupuncture treatment many, many, many times. And what we wanted to see is whether there was shared variance, meaning the dynamics of brain. Because every time something is repeated, you'll get a slightly different response in the brain activity in the patient and a slightly different response in the brain activity in the acupuncturist. And what we wanted to see if the variability of brain response in the patient was matching the variability of the brain response in the clinician, not just the activity, but the variability in this from trial to trial to trial, from repetition to repetition to repetition of the experiment. And that's actually kind of um, a subtle, but a very important part of, I think, the analysis that we did to try to really pin down the concordance and this brain concordance phenomenon that we're reporting. Now, what is it that the variability tells you? It tells us that there's a match in the dynamics. It means that, you know, there's always going to be a, a dynamic change. And if the clinician is following the patient, or frankly, if the patient is following the clinician, we actually don't know that yet. That's an analysis that we haven't done. You know, it's we want to see the, the variability over time and the dynamics in activity and how that matches the dynamics and activity in the other individual, because that's what really gets at information transfer and information flow and not just simultaneous activity. Simultaneous activity, again, could come from happenstance. Mm -hmm. You're looking to see if, if they're actually related to each other. That's right. If there's actual like evidence of information flow from one brain to another or information flow from one individual to another, mm -hmm. that's what we're really interested in because we think that's what's really going to be the underpinning of therapeutic alliance. This construct of therapeutic alliance is very important. It's important in psychology and you know, psychotherapy. It's important for a lot of different treatments. That's been shown in previous research, but nobody's ever looked at the brain concordance or the brain dynamics and the brain circuitry that might be the underpinnings of this therapeutic alliance. That's been very difficult, much more difficult to study. When you say therapeutic alliance, is this related to art of medicine that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that is a, an important part of this art of medicine. And, it, and it's called the art of medicine because it's hard to pin down, right? It, it's very difficult to study the neurobiology of this thing, right? And without studying physiology, you know, I think a lot of biomedicine has gone in this direction is you really is the need to understand the physiology. And but I think it's also important to study this for something like the art of medicine, because when we understand how things work, those things become much more important to decision makers in valuing those things and compensating for those things. And so therapeutic alliance is a construct that will be looked upon as much more important if we understand how it works and the neurobiology that's underlying therapeutic alliance. So this wouldn't just be helpful for us as practitioners in how we do our work, but people maybe in the insurance industry or people in various government agencies, if they see that this therapeutic alliance, this, let's say it's a soft skill of art of medicine, has measurable effects. Right. Oh, now insurance reimbursements might change in a big way or what's considered to be standard of care 
has a new definition. Or it, it would just be valued a lot more as part of the, the importance of, you know, of clinical practice. It's something that will attain much more value if we understand kind of the, the neurobiology underlying this kind of therapeutic alliance. And it's also, I think, something that could be important, you know, so, so that's one aspect, right? Why, you know, we necessarily do this study. I, to me, that's like, a, that's like a side benefit. I think another really important aspect of why we want to do this kind of research is to understand optimum care and how do we get at optimum care. So can we understand what elements of patient-clinician communication are most important to engendering good therapeutic alliance, are most important to engendering better brain-to-brain concordance. And if we understand that, then we can train clinicians better. We can train acupuncturists better in acupuncture schools of how to interact with their patients more. I don't believe that clinicians can't be trained to interact better. Yes, for some, it's it's certainly an easier skill than others. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't just throw out acupuncturists who are having a hard time with figuring out how to interact with their patients and might be actually be really skilled practitioners. I think there's an understanding of what parts of this interaction are maybe most important. I think this kind of research might help us understand that. I've heard colleagues of mine say, to some degree, it doesn't matter where you put the needle. It matters how you put that needle in. I don't see why it can't be both. Yes, I, I would say it's important, but also how you put in that needle is important. And the style of communication that you have with the patient is important. It's not like, you know, this is important and that's not. It's that all of these factors can be really important and all can combine together to really optimize clinical outcome. We need to study all these elements of acupuncture because they are important. All of these things are important. I find it really exciting that we have the technology now to be able to begin doing the kind of innovative work that you're doing here, where we're looking into people's actual brains and seeing how that might be being affected by the kind of communication that they're having. I'd like to turn for a second to the idea of intention. This is a very troublesome concept to me. I've been at this game for 20 plus years. And ever since I was in acupuncture school, I I would often hear about intention. Oh, you need to have the right intention. You need to set an intention or your intention is super important. Honestly, Vitaly, I often hear the word intention and I just, it's like, what are we all talking about? And I'm wondering if the work that you're doing might shed some light on why this seems to be a conversation that goes around in our field quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we definitely did not study that aspect here. So I'm not going to you know, be able to tell you, you know, we've pinned down the, the brain circuitry of intention. But I don't know. I mean, you know, just like hypothesizing, you know, how much of intention is attention? Mm. You know, if you tell somebody to focus on intention, that necessarily now gets you to pay more attention to how you're interacting with that patient as a clinician, as an acupuncturist. And maybe that's what's really important. Because that's what draws you in and connects you more to the patient. And ultimately, that's what we want to have better therapeutic alliance. You know, I keep coming back to this term therapeutic alliance. So maybe intention is kind of an important way to bring forth better therapeutic alliance. And it's just like it's a tool in a tool bag. It's a it's a skill that you learn to improve your therapeutic alliance. That's one possibility. This kind of ticks a box for me when I hear you say. Maybe intention is what helps you to bring your attention to the patient. Now I'm thinking again about 
the facial mirroring. I'm thinking about the way maybe our language falls into a similar cadence. You know, people's eyes tend to blink in similar ways when, when they're really in rapport. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's that attention that helps to jumpstart that process. Yeah, you can't mirror somebody if you're not paying attention. Absolutely. So that's an important element of it. In the research that you did, there's a term that I thought was really interesting. And I'd like to get your take on this. I want to hear more about it. Use the term a psychosocial analgesia. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, so there's a very sort of popular kind of construct in pain research called the, the biopsychosocial model. And this is the idea that pain arises from and pain can be impacted on many different levels, right? There's the biological aspects of pain, which are, for example, you know, the nociceptors that are, you know, scattered around your body and are transferring, you know, nociceptive or um, kind of potential tissue damage, real or potential tissue damage information up to the brain, which then are processed by pain. Pain is a cognitive, it's a part of consciousness, whereas the stimulus that comes up is, the, is called nociception, is the nociceptive stimulus. There's a biology around that and all the mediators and the neurons and substance P and, and, and cytokines and everything else that goes along with it. That's the biology. But then there's also the psychosocial element. And so psycho, that's, that's the, the psychology that can modulate how much pain. Is it a lot of pain or is it not a lot of pain? You know, I have this input, but am I going to say this is a lot of pain or is this, oh, I can handle this. This is not so bad. And so that's on a psychological level. And constructs such as what's called, you know, pain catastrophizing, you know, negative affect, and all of these kinds of constructs that unfortunately are sometimes can be comorbid with pain. People that also suffer from depression, people that also suffer from anxiety, all of these are psychological aspects that can upregulate the pain that somebody feels. And then there's a social level, right? So then there's the level by which, you know, what's your social interaction like? What's your social support at home? What is your relationship to your caregivers? What is your relationship to your acupuncturist, to your clinician? And that is a much less studied element of chronic pain and what contributes to, uh, to the suffering involved in pain is kind of the social element. But it's really all three of those things, the biopsychosocial model. So here we're trying to use neuroimaging to try to understand biology, but we're using that to un- also understand the psychosocial elements that can interplay to modulate pain perception and to up or down regulate pain. And so that's why we're interested in this relationship between a patient and a clinician, because it's getting at this psychosocial aspect of pain perception. I just heard you use the term pain is a construct. It's a construct in the mind. And Sometimes I get just too much into the meat suit and I'm thinking, oh yeah, there's a problem with a disc and there's some impingement on a nerve and blah, 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 on and on and on. And yes, then there is also the question of, and what meaning does a person make of that? Does that actually impact their life a lot? Does it impact their life a little? I've noticed, I don't know about depressed people, but I've noticed people who tend to be naturally pessimistic their pain is usually a lot worse than people that are optimistic. Yeah, that's very consistent. A mindset, the idea of mindset and the importance of mindset on suffering. And this is not to say that mindset is completely setting pain levels, right? You can't tell somebody that has a pessimistic mindset, oh, 
just be positive and your pain will go away. That's not the case. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. They don't know how to be positive. That's, that's very unhelpful to them. It's an important skill that can be trained and should be trained and, you know, can be learned and it can significantly improve their pain. But I think it's overly simplistic to say that, you know, their pain will go away if they just become a more positive person. So we have to be careful in how we use these terms and how we couch what we say in using these terms. But that's also to say that these are important moderators. These are really important sort of variables that we have to consider. And I think part of what we do as acupuncturists is also to talk about these things and to talk about them on a kind of a therapeutic level while we're doing the needling or before the needling or after the needling and talk to people to try to address that either on our own or in combination with, you know, trained psychologists. Again, it's a delight to be able to talk to you both as a researcher and as a practitioner. That's a very full set of skills. It's hard to, uh, to, to make a career in this as a, um, as a practicing acupuncturist. And I recognize that completely. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, it's hard to make a career in any you know, one of the two fields that you're involved in, but you seem to be pulling them both off. So congratulations on that. In terms, I want to speak to the acupuncturist in you for a moment. From the acupuncture point of view, what else might be going on with the work that we do and how we do it? That, I mean, you know that place where people go. You come back in the room after doing a treatment, mm-hmm. and the room feels different to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the patient's breathing is different, and their color is different. And maybe they say something like, Oh, I. I think I went to sleep and I woke up and I thought I was at home, right? They, they go to that deep sense of, literally they go to that deep sense of home. Something in them really stills. So I think that that has a lot to do with the kind of brain concordance that we're studying in a way that we are mere empathically mirroring the emotions and the affect that we get from our patients as clinicians. Like interestingly enough, I think the brain activity of the acupuncturist is just as interesting to study as the brain activity of the patient. And anybody who's, who's a psychiatrist, for example, or even a psychologist in their training is uh, sometimes taught 
to try to look inwardly and try to feel what their patient is feeling to understand what their diagnosis might be, right? If like, what is the feeling you get from being in the same room with a patient? Is it a, is it a calm feeling? Is it a down feeling? You know, maybe that's depression. Is it an up feeling? Am I feeling manic? Am I feeling kind of like all over the place and scattered because the patient is also feeling that way? Because we naturally as clinicians are trying to be empathic. And so we're trying to feel what the patient might be feeling. And there's, that's a whole other conversation about whether that's a good thing or not. But to some degree, we are able to transfer that emotion and, and through empathy. And, you know, if we come in after the treatment and suddenly the, the sun is shining and the birds are singing and the patient comes up and they're so much more relaxed than, than when, when they came in and after, you know, driving and the traffic and, oh my God, this is terrible and my pain is terrible. And, you know, you feel awful with them at the beginning of the treatment and then they get up off the table and the anxiety is relieved. They're much more calmed. And now we are feeling calm, right? As clinicians, we are feeling calm from the mirroring, either from, you know, facial mirroring, body mirroring talking to them, you know, verbal mirroring and brain concordance and brain mirroring that we're experiencing with that patient. And that's why we feel that way as clinicians, because the patient is now interacting with us in a much more relaxed, you know, less anxious way. I've got a couple thoughts about that. And one is that the idea of feeling into ourselves what might be happening with the patient and doing that cautiously, because otherwise you could end up really exhausted and a bit disturbed at the end of the day. That's right. Right. And I've heard about, I've heard practitioners warn me when I was a student, like, don't take your patient stuff on. Right. You can do that. Don't do that. Right. Enough to feel and understand them, you know, but then you got to let it go. You got to wash it back out. It's the difference between compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful to err more, I think, on the compassion side than on the complete empathy side where you're feeling the emotion that the patient is feeling. Tell us more about that difference. Well, compassion is on some ways on a cognitive level. Maybe you're experiencing, you're feeling the emotions that the patient is kind of sending out, but you're not necessarily internalizing them to the degree that you have long-term experience of that emotion. You're taking that emotion, understanding it, and then directing it in a cognitive way to exude compassion for your patients. You know, you have to be very careful that the empathy that you're feeling doesn't become completely internalized to the point that you're taking it home with you, to the point that it's staying with you for an extended period of time. Because first of all, you got to see multiple patients, and not all patients are going to be the same. And if somebody comes in and they are depressed, and you know you are feeling depressed because you're interacting with this patient, and then you carry that over to the next patient that you're seeing who's not depressed, that doesn't serve that patient any good, right? That you have to page and you have to be there for the next patient that you're seeing as well. So you have to be very careful as to how much you internalize the emotions that you're feeling from any given patient. So, and again, if I'm getting off the rails here, reel me back in, okay? Because I'm so fascinated about this work that you're doing, and I'm keen on exploring this idea that when I'm with a patient, there's a part of our brains that are mirroring, kind of having a conversation with each other. And again, back to this idea that I could 
for a moment, allow my brain to mirror the patient's brain so that I could understand them better so I can help them. But then it's like, I want to take an old Etch-a-Sketch. Remember the Etch-a-Sketch? Yeah. yeah. You know, you like draw these pictures and you take it and turn it upside down and shake it and you got a, a blank slate. How can we do that with our nervous system? Well, first of all, this whole mirroring idea, this sounds like it could be a possible mechanism for better understanding our patients. Am I reading too much into this or? Uh, no, I think you're not. No? I think okay. It, I think that is kind of where the research is, is headed and, and we have some evidence of that is that we think it's a good thing mm -hmm. that you have brain concordance and brain mirroring in this, these specific brain areas. But it might be the kind of thing where there are certain brain areas where you don't want mirroring because certain brain areas, if you have mirroring in that area, it tends to then go into some sort of memory trace and now you've internalized it more. And that's actually you know, leading to more negative outcomes. So we, we don't know that. That's something that you know I think we need to explore in future research, but it's very possible that it's not just brain. There's a lot of different brain regions and a lot of specific regions that might be involved in sort of positive concordance and some regions that might be involved in sort of negative implications of concordance. And you don't want to have concordance between certain brain regions because that then leads to you, know, you internalizing these uh, negative emotions from your patients too much. Yes. Well, again, I, I like this idea of an Etch-a-Sketch that I could get an impression mm -hmm. whoosh, and then wash it away. Any advice or suggestions on being able to wash it away? Like, how do we keep our brains clean? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you, you have to uh, somehow block your short-term memory. I mean, they always say that it's, it's actually really hard to have this photographic memory. You're, you're better off forgetting. Forgetting is so much more important than remembering. Because forgetting is what allows you to move forward and move on with your day and not take the, all the negative things that have happened to you in, in any one day into the next day. You know, rose-colored glasses are not a bad thing. And you need to be able to forget some bad things in order to keep moving forward. That's an important thing. So maybe what we want to do is to keep some of this concordance from going into you know, the hippocampus and some other brain areas that are important for memory consolidation so that you can turn a page. You can you know, take that Etch-a-Sketch and shake it about. Yeah. I've done a little study with some folks that use some of the osteopathic listening techniques. They'll just put their hands on people. Mm -hmm. And a key element of that, you're not looking for anything. You're seeing what comes to you. And, but you don't take it in all the way. It's just like, it's like you take a, it's almost like you look at it out of the corner of your eye. You don't take it in too far, but you take it in enough so that you've got the information. And again, I'm wondering now about, wonder how that fits in the whole proprioception aspect of how humans connect with each other and what's happening in our brains. Yeah. And who knows what the linkage of that is? Who knows how important it actually is to have that hand there? Is the hand really the important part of that connection? Or is it being present in the room and the whole intention attention thing that we were talking about earlier? Is that the important element there that then leads to, you know, mirroring and social mirror circuitry and, and this kind of brain concordance that, you know, helps you tap into the understanding of your patient better? Well, I remember in studying some Japanese techniques, the teachers I had would always emphasize and emphasize very strongly how your attention needs to go, not necessarily to the hand that's touching the needle, but the hand that is supporting the needle. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. I mean, maybe this, this is a way to also kind of like feel the physiology of the patient in a way 
you know, not just, you know, through the needle, because the hand that's touching the needle is getting its feedback from the needle itself. You get a lot more feedback from the hand that's actually around the needle and on the, you know, touching the patient. So, so maybe there is some way to transfer kind of an understanding in the same way that we would face-to-face transfer information. We could, maybe there's a way that some sort of aspect of physiology from the patient gets transferred through the hand that's touching them. It's the guide hand. A new research project. A new research project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much to study. I mean, that's the great thing about research. That's what I really love about it. Any study that I do asks, ends up leading to more questions than answering questions. And that's the best part of research. It's a terrible study that you ask a question, you answer it, and that's it. You know, end of the day, I've answered that question, it's over, right? That's bad research. Good research answers that question, but then leads to five new questions that you didn't even think about before you started that study. Absolutely. It's like finding your lost car keys. It's always in the last place you looked. Yeah. And then there's something in the brain that goes, oh, it's like that. And that's it. Then you stop inquiring. Then you stop looking. Then you stop noticing all those strange little things you caught out of the corner of your eye. Yes, the the best questions are the ones that that lead to more questions. I could not agree with you more. You got to lose our car keys more often. Oh, I my father taught me how not to lose my car keys. Oh, yeah. How's that? He always lost his car keys. <laughs> okay. My dad put them anywhere and then he wouldn't remember. That's right. So what I learned to do was I walk in the house, I put my car keys in the same place every single time. I just do that and then I don't have to worry about it later. That's right. It's like these little tricks, little life hacks. Little life hacks. See, that's, that's right. It's the benefit of getting older. You learn all these little life hacks. Well, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, right. I'd hate to be having to relearn the lessons I learned in my 20s and my 60s. That would be awful. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we've just got a little bit more time here. I want to delve for a moment into neuroplasticity if we can. Sure. Because I was looking at your list of research projects, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is longer than most people's arm, by the way. And I saw that you had done a thing on acupuncture and uh, neuroplasticity uh, with carpal tunnel syndrome and its response to acupuncture. I'd love to hear, you know, I just saw those words together, acupuncture, carpal tunnel, blame uh, neuroplasticity. It's like, ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So neuroplasticity is a very sort of general term that just basically refers to the idea that the brain changes and the connections in the brain change and neurons that you know were previously unconnected now become connected. And so that's really what's underlying the concept of neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity happens when somebody suffers from pain for a long time. The brain changes, the way the brain responds to things changes, the connections in the brain change. And when you undergo an intervention that's hopefully therapeutic, like acupuncture, the brain can change again, and it could potentially revert back to a more normal fashion. And so what we were doing in those studies where we were specifically studying, now instead of the relationship, we were studying the needling component. So in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how I've been interested in studying kind of like multiple aspects of acupuncture, the the needle aspect of acupuncture, but also the relationship. And so in the work with carpal tunnel syndrome, we specifically looked at how the brain is actually changing in a maladaptive way in patients that are suffering from carpal tunnel syndrome and the pain at the wrist. And then what happens after acupuncture? You know, so your your pain becomes improved, but then how does your brain change in conjunction with that as well? 
And that was basically the focus of that study and what a different part of the brain called the primary somatosensory cortex and how the mapping in the primary somatosensory cortex is changed after successful acupuncture therapy. So could this answer the question for people then? Because I have people ask this all the time. They'll say things like, well, I've got this degenerative disc disease, or I've got this impinged nerve, or I've got this scar or injury, whatever, that is physical. Acupuncture is not going to change that. It's not going to change their disc. But it sounds like what might be possible is it changes the brain's experience of that disc. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think a lot of what happens is that I think what we're understanding in the pain research field, sometimes termed as centralization, meaning you, you might have an initial event that causes you to feel pain, but if that pain continues for long enough, that's what then becomes chronic pain. You transfer from an acute to subacute to chronic pain. And at that point, the pain becomes centralized, meaning the brain starts to change. And when the brain starts to change, that's why people can suffer from chronic pain for a long time, even if the disc is improved, even if the original peripheral source of that pain is kind of, quote unquote, dealt with or reverts back to a more normal form, you know, on imaging. And the person is still suffering from chronic pain. Why does that happen? Because the connections in the brain change, because the brain is plastic and the brain changes and the brain now is kind of wired in a different way. And that's been a lot of, you know, the past 20 years of pain research have explored in all the different ways that the brain changes in response to chronic pain. And what we're looking at is to try to understand that better in our research, but also how does acupuncture impact that? How can acupuncture impact the brain plasticity that occurs in a beneficial way so it can potentially revert back to a more normal functioning, normal brain physiology. How do you think that happens? I think it happens through signaling to the central nervous system. I think there's transduction from the needle to tissues such as, you know, connective tissues around the needle, which then pull on fibers, pull on nerve endings, affect nerve endings, and then signal up to the brain to change the way the brain is organized. And so that's sort of beneficial neuroplasticity. And that especially something that occurs with, with electroacupuncture, because that gives you a lot of information flow up to the brain. But even with manual acupuncture, you can get that. And with manual acupuncture, and then there's many ways to rewire the brain. The interaction with the clinician and everything we've been talking about with therapeutic alliance, that's just another mode to change the brain. You don't have to have somatosensory input and touch input and, and needle input and things like that to change the brain. The brain can change from learning. The brain can change from training. The brain can change from a relationship and meeting somebody in a coffee shop. These are all examples <laughs> of neuroplasticity. Yes. Now I'm wondering if there's anything that I could do as a clinician that would help to jumpstart or prime that process of inviting the brain to be a little more plastic. Yeah, th that would be great if you could control it and turn it off and turn it on. There are definitely certain you know, neurotransmitters that have been neuromodulators that have been associated with this process of learning. And there's a lot of people that are interested in figuring out ways to speed up learning and speed up these processes or to deal with people who have difficulty in learning. And there's certain parts of the brain. There's the local ceruleus, which is an important source for neuroadrenaline in the brain. That's thought to be an important element of, of neuroplasticity. 
and trying to target this area. And so actually some of our research is looking for ways to deal with that. It's a, you know, it's a whole another topic of conversation, but, you know, can we maybe combine techniques that, you know, target these specific parts of the brain, like the locus ceruleus and couple them maybe with acupuncture or couple them with other interventions to improve clinical outcomes. That's something that I've been very interested in recently as well in some of my ongoing studies. I love this idea of using learning to help reshape the brain. And I'm also thinking about something you said just a few minutes ago about the importance of forgetting. And, and so now I feel like I've got two things that I can play with in clinic. One is helping prime people to maybe learn something new. Mm-hmm. Now I'm wondering about how I can help people forget. <laughs> Let it go. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, letting things go and how hard that is. Yes, it's terribly hard. Element of kind of contextualizing it, boxing it up, you know, dealing with it, and then, but moving on, being able to move on. Any suggestions for helping people do that? No. I I understand you're not a psychotherapist. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to be very careful. And there are certainly trained psychotherapists who are also acupuncturists. And, you know, those people have a very valuable skill set. But, you know, I think as acupuncturists, and I say this for myself, because I'm not a psychotherapist is, you know, I definitely, I talk a lot to patients, you know, we talk about these things a lot, but I also know my limits. And you, you know, you have to be careful and know kind of like, at what point do you say, you know what, you should really discuss this with a professional with, you know, social worker, pain psychologist, a psychotherapist. It's important to know where that line is. Absolutely. Yeah. Vitaly, anything else that you would like to share with us today about this research that you're doing or other things that you've got on the burner? It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I think research is very important for our profession. And I'm, you know, really heartened by how many new acupuncturists are kind of graduating and coming out and realizing the importance of research and the importance of research in pushing kind of the establishment for a greater acceptance and greater, um, you know, remuneration and all these kinds of things to support acupuncture in the clinic. And so I think organizations such as the Society of Acupuncture Research that I'm very much involved in are kind of at the forefront of some of these issues. And I very much appreciate clinicians' support for organizations such as that and support for acupuncture research in general and understanding the importance of it for our profession. Well, there's a bunch of doctoral students out there, you might be hearing from some of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for your time today. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, I look forward to reading about more that you're doing. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I sure do love science. Always have. And as a kid, I read a lot of science fiction. So I'm not surprised that we have ways of understanding our curious human nature by using the fantastic tools that we as a species have created. People say that cats are curious, but they don't hold a candle to the curiosity of a human being. I hope that you found today's conversation to be helpful and inspiring. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. 
Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. 